Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast, Season 6, Episode 11. What are you going to emphasize with the playing group that we have? What sort of game do you want to play? Do you want to play a more physical game? Do you want to play a more um, widespread, a more running game? Which obviously will impact on how the strength and conditioning program develops. This is the NSCA's Coaching Podcast, where we talk to strength and conditioning coaches about what you really need to know, but probably didn't learn in school. There's strength and conditioning, and then there's everything else. Welcome to the NSCA Coaching Podcast. I'm Eric McMahon. Today, we're joined by a previous guest on a past season of the NSCA Coaching Podcast, Ashley Jones. If you've been a part of the NSCA for a number of years, you probably know Ashley coming out of New Zealand with over 30 years of career coaching experience across four continents. Always great catching up. And uh, Ash, great to have you with us. Thanks very much, Eric. It's a great pleasure to uh, be asked to come back on the podcast. Uh, had a great one with uh, Scott Caulfield a few years ago now. So uh, it's great to be able to sit down and chat with you. You know, we've been through a lot since... Uh, you know, you won the Coach of the Year Award back in 2015 and probably did the podcast around that time. And uh, COVID-19 moved the podcast to all virtual. So you're home in New Zealand. I'm here in Colorado Springs. Uh, it's definitely opened up the ability for us to talk to people all around the world. So always good catching up with you. Um, you know, we're going to talk about a few things today. You know, your NSCA involvement over many years uh, strength and conditioning in the sport of rugby, something that a lot of coaches maybe don't get the chance to connect with very often. Uh, and uh, first, I'd like to just hear, you know, for anyone that maybe doesn't know your background, just share that with us. How'd you get into the profession? How'd you find the NSCA and what does it mean to you? Well, I guess the NSCA and, and my strength and conditioning career have been sort of uh, really side by side the entire way because I actually first found out about the NSCA when I was uh, my first week at Teachers College uh, back in Sydney, Australia, where I was uh, born and raised. And uh, my first week at Teachers College, I went to the library just to, to check that out and to see what was around and uh, happened upon the NSCA journal in uh, one of its original formats back in 1980 and sort of grabbed it, sat down and sort of read it cover to cover. Uh, and from that point on, I, I realized that although I was doing a teaching degree and majoring in physical education, which back in those days was the only way that you could actually be involved with sport would be to be a phys ed teacher rather than the, the plethora of uh, associated degrees that you can actually do now. So um, I'd started that and uh, was trying to still play a little bit of rugby at the time, but realized that uh, I'd probably peaked as a teenager and uh, now moving into my late teens, early twenties, that my best chance to stay with sport was to be a strength and conditioning coach, was a, which was a completely new concept uh, in Australia back in those days, because no one actually knew what a strength and conditioning coach did or was or, or was involved in. But um, after reading the journal, that was, that was basically... Uh, me set up for the rest of my life in in sport really and it's gone on from there uh, now what 40 odd years later yeah we were connecting about a year or two ago uh in in your time with major league rugby working out of houston and and you're an active member of the rugby special interest group you're also member of the nsca certification committee and the awards and honors committee we pushed all our members to all our certificates to get involved with the NSCA. It's important that we have leaders at the community level that represent the NSCA and spread, spread the word of what we're doing from an education standpoint and the value of our credentials in the field. Uh, share your experience just on, on those committees within the special interest group and just how impactful that's been for you. Well, it's, it's been quite a journey along with that because obviously I, I first got my certification, my CSCS back in 1988. And I think um, on last time I spoke to some people at the NSCA, I think there's probably less than 100 people with, uh, with that time 
time under the bar type of deal that uh, Dave Tate would often talk about uh, with the certification. So it's a great honor for me to, to have that. And it's always been a part and parcel of uh, what I've stood for is uh, holding on to that certification and gradually uh, becoming star D over the last couple of years with, with a greater involvement in the NSCA activities. So because I'm an international representative, I was uh, uh, able to become a member of the certification uh, committee, which I've sat on for uh, a number of years now. And I think that's that's been really eye-opening for me, not only to hold the cert certification for so long, but to to look at the, the diversity of people wanting to become CSCSs, which I think is fantastic. And also to, to look at the, the number of increasing uh, certification specialists coming through as well. And not just, just in the CSCS, but in the personal training area and the tactical area, and now in the sports science area as well, which obviously is a, 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 a massive, uh, task to put a certification, a new certification in place, but really shows where the NSCA is growing towards as well, which obviously starting in coaching and then encompassing a lot of different areas, and now sort of spreading their wings around the, the area of sports science, uh, which is really such a massive area of uh, the whole strength and conditioning uh, industry and profession. So it's great to see that involved as well. The um, as you said earlier, I was very fortunate enough to, to be awarded the Professional Strength and Conditioning Coaching of the Year Award in, 19, uh, in 2015. And that sort of allowed me to venture into the Awards and Honours Committee because one of the prerequisites is to have been awarded one of those uh, um, NSCA awards. So to see that and to be part of looking at who can be honored within the NSCA. And it's, it's great to be looking at the, the breadth of people involved now that that committee is looking at and together with sort of looking at the nominations committee and looking at all the available resources that we have now to sort of push people forward. And, and really it's, it's such a great method to actually reach a wider range of people and to, to recognize their support of the NSCA, but also their support of the industry that we've worked lo long and hard since Boyd Epley first started the association back in 1978 to where we are now is, is such a, a massive journey along that way. So to be a part of those two committees is really important to me because it's you are part of something bigger than just yourself. And it is a way of also giving back to the profession and, and trying to develop it even further by looking at the experiences that you've had within the NSCA and, and the strength and conditioning industry as such, and trying to improve areas and to, to sort of be a part of developing things further so that the NSCA can, can go further afield and, and have its continued recognized place as the leading strength and conditioning organization in the world. I think it's really exciting. And I'll jump on the uh, awards and honors train first. You know, it's really exciting every time one of those awards gets given because it's, uh, you know, I think the one that stands out to me and maybe the, the little opposite of how we think of these, it's the assistant college strength and conditioning coach of the year award, you know, right. and we obviously have our research award, our lifetime achievement awards. Uh, across all of our disciplines, but in the in the area of coaching, our Coach of the Year awards uh, from high school, and then we have the the three, uh, you know, the two college and the professional award. But that assistant award is one that I think is so special and unique because it really can be such a springboard for a up and coming coach in their career that really affirms that they're doing the right things, that they're making an impact, that they have great recommendations, that they are vested in the, in the association. They, they're an RSCC coach. They're, they're learning and they're growing. And that's just one that I really pay attention to. You know, Ryan Metzger won it, uh, Clemson, now University of Tennessee this past year, Andy Stocks, um, the year before. And, you know, when, when I got into this job, you know, I really thought about the future you know, the future of 
the association and where it's going, because we've all been there where we, we hit some roadblock roadblocks or some, some bumps along the way, or wish it was a little bit easier. And, uh, at various times, and now we're in that position where, whether you're a volunteer with the NSCA, part of a committee, part of a special interest group, you're in that position to actually voice in on policies, procedures, uh, just to help be part of the decision-making process that's going to impact things for years to come. So I, I'm very thankful for all the work of the awards and honors, you know, group. And it, it really, you know, the inspiring of young coaches to advance in their careers and move into more senior roles. And we're seeing a lot of growth right now. Yeah, I think it's very important in that sort of when I first started, uh, there was not too many people, particularly in Australia and New Zealand, that were actually full-time employed as strength and conditioning coaches. And now you look at the, the number of uh, educational programs around the world and the number of graduates coming out, obviously the number of graduates seems to be outweigh the number of positions. So there is a lot of avenues that you need to sort of to look down to see if this is the right path for you and, and how you can make it work. And, and I think looking at volunteering and being part of the the NSCA and and other avenues and other areas that you can uh, help out with before you actually get that big break and and move into a, a fully paid role as a strength and conditioning coach is is a key area as well so certification committee you know one thing that maybe gets overlooked at times is that we have five certification programs at the NSCA not a lot of associations manage that many certifications uh, simultaneously. And it really is a lot of work to do that. There's a lot of process. Uh, anyone who's been along with us in the journey of building this sports science credential has, has heard the various steps. And we've tried to be very transparent in communicating where we're at and when timelines are coming along. And just now we're actually about to uh, finalize the cut score for the first 50 or 60 people that have taken the test, you know, mm -hmm. with over 350 applicants, you know, already uh, just, just in the first year. So a lot of excitement around that. Uh, talk about what the certification committee does. I think that's one of the ones that is, when you're in the building is very important. Uh, but when you're out in the NSCA community, you may not have a full understanding. Well, the, the certification committee looks at people who have uh, completed the exam or looking at completing CEUs and some people have been unable to complete it. And we look at uh, rationales to why we could give an extension to, to certain people and trying to maintain the policies and procedures of the NSCA, which are clearly identified uh, to all certificate holders as we go through. But some people, particularly uh, over the last couple of years with COVID, uh, inabilities to actually get their CEUs uh, complete at the end of the, each uh, certification cycle. Um, we, we basically have numerous uh, Zoom meetings to get to analyze each and every one of these people that uh, have uh, put up rationales to why they should be given more time or, or to find a reason why we can maintain their certification. And, and that's not something we take lightly. We, we sit down and discuss and go through detail with the NSCA staff, which provides such a, a wealth of uh, knowledge and backgrounds to each and every one of these uh, uh, people putting their case forward. Uh, and the, determine whether we can allow more time to complete their, their CEUs or uh, rationales to why we should allow them to reset the exam and, and things like that. But we want to maintain the credibility of the certification. So it's 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 not an easy process. And um, we all that have been on the uh, committee for an extended period of time, look at the standard as, as what we wanna focus on. And we are human. So we also look at that human side of things to, to allow people to provide evidence that they should be given extra time to do something, but we do have rules and regulations to sit by as well. So it's, it's a lot of different arms within that certification committee. And, and also looking at the review of the exam uh, exams 
as we go through so that we actually maintain uh, the standard and credibility and keep up to date with the, the trends within the profession as well. Yeah, and, and I think one thing that's really interesting, you're talking about the appeals process and the exam writing process, and obviously those exam development committees are subcommittees of, of, um, of the committee at whole. And it's uh, really interesting when we get in the conversations around, you know, what content applies under certain CEU categories. And there's always some updates with every three-year recertification cycle. Um, talk a little bit about, you know, what it takes to be qualifying for CEUs. This is a question we get a lot at the NSCA. Uh, you know, the term DCO, detailed content outline that everything, all roads go back to, you know, the, the content that the exam is based on and how, how credit gets assigned. You know, how does the certification committee look at content or topics that get submitted for CEUs that may or may not qualify? Yeah, I think that's that's been an important point that we've been looking at uh, the last meeting we had in uh, the uh, uh, spring meeting just, just gone, in that uh, so many people are sort of trying to jump on these sort of unaccredited courses to, to get their certification CEUs up. And I think it's, it's, it's really looking at the value of the course in association with the certification, the certificate that you're trying to actually uh, renew in that it's, there are clear guidelines posted on a regular basis for these particular areas. But I think um, some people in the last minute or the last rush tend to sort of reach out for any uh, courses that may be offered online and, and variations on that. And some of them just aren't fully accredited. So unfortunately, we have to uh, negate that particular course and, and hopefully direct people towards uh, courses that they may be able to do. And that's why the NSCA has been pushing a lot of their, their free CEUs online. I mean, uh, they mount up pretty quickly when you're, when you're getting 0.2s and 0.3 CEU uh, credits for actually doing a, a free educational unit. And it's, it's a real great credit to the NSCA, which we're starting to look at different lines of education that they can actually push people towards to actually improve their ability to get their CEUs within that, that timeframe. And I mean, attendance at the, the conference, uh, either virtually or in person uh, is, to still for me, the best way to get your CEUs up relatively quickly, because obviously you're getting two CEUs for each attendance and you will get 5.5 for that particular grouping of CEUs for attendance at conferences. And then if you were to just do a couple of these CEUs online through uh, the, the courses online, you've allocated your six already over the course of the, the three year cycle. So uh, for some people, it seems to have been quite difficult over the COVID era. Um, and I guess we're still, we're just coming out of that and in-person events will be a lot easier to attend. Uh, even for people like myself coming from across the opposite side of the world, I really look forward to getting to those in-person events. Uh, we've had to do a couple of virtual over the last couple of years, but it's actually that that networking opportunity and, and sitting down and chatting with like-minded people at the, either the coaches conference or the, the, the national conference, which I've probably been to more than anything else. But I really like to go to a tactical conference at one stage and looking at, particularly from my sport of rugby, how the relationship between the tactical training and rugby training are, are relatively close, I think. And the type of people that are there are, are, are very similar to rugby people as well, which is which is which would be wonderful to see. So I think that's that's the big thing as far as CEU's concerned is, is, is trying to, to best fit your lifestyle, your needs to what is available through the NSCA um, CEUs, which is not as difficult as it may seem over to six units over three years. And it's just a matter of looking through those details to get the right fit for you. Yeah, a couple, couple things there. You know, I was just at an event in the ASCA. Uh, Australia had a booth set up and they had flown in. So things are starting to open back up internationally, which is, which is really great to see. And I think one of the, the big take-homes here for anyone that maybe struggles to get their CEUs completed over the three years is 
start early, get in your inbox and see when the free CEU opportunities come out for members. If you're not a member, join because it's not just about paying your dues and saying you're a member. Really, it's about the extra access you get to the education materials. Uh, when it comes to what qualifies and what doesn't, it goes back to high standards, you know, and the goal we all had, you go back to 1978, Boyd Epley and the association coming together, a group of coaches, they came together for the unity of the profession. And it was about principles. I think we all know those principles, you know, if you're in this profession and it goes back to, to those principles, but those, those principles became standards of our profession, of the coaching profession. And, uh, you know, it's, it's fun to talk about this because we get a lot of questions at the headquarters, you know, about this every three years. And it's not a, this isn't a renewal year, uh, but we're already talking about it because we're trying to get out in front of it to help people keep their certifications, keep their credentials current. And uh, I just thought this was a great opportunity, Ashley, to, to dive into some of these things. The last thing I want to talk about on this side of it is, you know, we're talking about high standards. In 2030, the NSCA CSCS exam uh, is changing. It's changing so that you have to go to an accredited academic institution, and that process is underway right now, where uh, you're going through a full curriculum, including coursework, including fieldwork, uh, through our accrediting body, CASCI. Um, and we'll put all the links for this information in the show notes for anyone that maybe isn't familiar with what we're talking about. But from a certification committee standpoint, just someone that's been part of the NSCA for a long time, going back, you know, 1980 to today, what have you seen just this evolution of the CSCS and, and just the integrity and, and uh, impact of the certification and the value of the certification in terms of standards? I think I'll pick a, a couple of words there that you've mentioned. I think firstly, the value of the certification. Being an international, the CSCS has still been a really important part of my SNC journey, if you like, in that when I first did that in 1988, I sort of was young, enthusiastic, fancied myself that I knew quite a bit about strength and conditioning. And then I sat the exam and thought, I walked out of there thinking, I think I failed that exam. I don't think I know anywhere near as much as I thought I did. And uh, fortunately, I, I passed the exam. And But from that point on, I've actually realized the value of it as not just a tool for a job, but it's almost like, it's almost like a red badge of courage. It's, it's, it's part and parcel of, me as a strength and conditioning coach is having my CSCS and, and that's been, I mean, what, that's now coming up for uh, 11 recertification cycles, I think that is over the course of that, that period of time. And I'd hate to think how much money I've spent over the years coming from Australia or coming from New Zealand and trying to maintain that linkage, but it's been worth it along the way in that, for me, it's it's the one element of my involvement, the NSCA, which I've continued all the way through. I sort of had peaks and troughs of involvement, but I've had the CSCS all the way through since 88. And then since then, the RSCC Star E was added on top of that uh, as part and parcel of that, uh, that uh, certification. So it's been an extremely important thing. The other aspect is you mentioned was integrity and the integrity of the certification, I think, is improving because of this transition into accredited uh, education facilities in that it always irked me a little bit that someone could have done uh, a degree in French literature and, and not to downgrade French literature <laughs> as, as a degree, but I always thought that you really needed to have a degree based in exercise physiology or physical education as I did back in the day or some form of sports science, things like that, uh, to allow you to have a good background of knowledge to actually be able to sit the exam and, and to, to get the accreditation. But now 
we're going one step further and looking at what we need within the programs within the schools to actually increase the integrity of the, of the certification for the CSCS to, to be even more of a gold standard that it has from, from day dot to, to 2030 as we, we get closer. And that's only eight years ago to, to go now, which is obviously gonna accelerate fairly heavily in the next wee while. So I think the values and integrity that you spoke about is just so evident and becoming even more evident as we move towards that 2030 deadline. You know, I actually like when, you know, I, I get a lot of calls from coaches and some coaches have a lot to say or things we could do better at the NSCA. And one of the ones over the years that's been very, um, you know, there's just been very common or a question that comes up in our special interest groups is, hey, why isn't, why isn't there a hands-on portion to the CSCS exam? And and whether whether there there could be or 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 not, you know, beside the point. But one thing that will be addressed through the accreditation process is the addition of field work and and just reading through the requirements uh, that have been developed. And academic programs are currently being vetted for this. It's not just you do an internship with one program and graduate and you're done. You actually need to have separate experiences, fieldwork experiences uh, in distinctly different environments. So that might be an internship in college strength and conditioning and one in the private sector or one in professional sports and uh, one in tactical strength and conditioning. So you're actually coming out of one of these programs, a more well-rounded uh, entry-level strength coach that allows you a little bit more versatility maybe in your profession. And that's so relevant today when we look at just the number of opportunities that that are out there. I think that's, yeah, that's you, I think you've nailed it. Because when I did my initial teacher training, uh, we had to do a practicum in special education. We had to do a practicum in... Uh, uh, primary school teaching, we had to do a practicum in junior secondary teaching. So it allowed us to get a, a more rounded education in the, the teaching environments. And it's, it's like when I've coached overseas and, and coached in, in a, a language that was not my own, what that does is very similar to that education process in that you have to be 100% sure in your own mind of what you want to get across when you're speaking in a foreign language and otherwise if it's interpreted or translated incorrectly then you're not actually going to get that emphasis into the into the coaching program so the same thing when you're actually going through teacher training looking at working with um, special education uh, units you're looking at longer term adaptations, not the short term adaptations that we would look at applying in normal training situations. But you're looking at that patience and, and looking at best ways, best practices to actually develop those skills so that when you're actually coaching and, and uh, in your own language, it becomes a lot easier to get the message across because you know 100% in your own mind what you actually want. Yeah, I really like that, you know, and I think one thing here, you know, when, the more we do these international episodes, I think it just introduces the idea that there's so many opportunities out there for coaches to find. I had a great experience coaching in Italy with the MLB Europe program early in my career and really fortunate that I got that. Talk about like being around another language. Fortunately, a lot of my athletes at the time, you know, they were international level players, you know, youth junior players. So they, they, they spoke a good amount of English, but you get really thrown into the fire and you're in a different country and you're by yourself and you're like, you know, it's, you actually can learn a lot about how great a coach you are and how effective you are when you throw yourself into those situations. And uh, I want to jump into coaching a little bit with you, Ash. Uh, you know, last time we, we talked coaching, it was a rugby special interest group meeting. I, I always joke as, you know, the staff liaison with that group that I am just there to learn. I know very little about the sport of rugby, uh, but I, I think it's such a great game and that, you know, there's such a high conditioning element, but there's also such a, obviously a strength and physicality to the sport. Uh, talk about 
your experience with the sport of rugby and just what you're seeing, you know, with the growth of it in the States right now? Well, it's interesting. I'll tell you a story. When I was at Houston uh, with the Sabercats for the last uh, two seasons, uh, I attended a World Rugby, USA Rugby seminar in Houston. And this really gives, to me, it really made the, the, the picture complete in that uh, there was about probably 50 plus people in the room from a whole wide diversity of sport, uh, rugby environments in the United States. And uh, the, the moderator said, okay, everyone stand up. And he said, sit down if you were introduced to rugby after you left college. And probably about 60% of the uh, room sat down. And he said, okay, sit down if you were introduced to rugby during your college years. And about another 20 people sat down. He said, sit down if you were introduced to rugby during high school. And the majority of people sat down. So, um, and I said, anyway, I think there was three of us left. There was myself, a guy from the United Kingdom, and a guy from Argentina left was standing in the group of uh, 50 plus uh, people in the room. And they said, well, when were you introduced to rugby? And, and, and I said, uh, I was introduced to rugby uh, playing under eights uh, for the DY Lions in, in the area where I grew up in Sydney. And that's the big difference, I think, between the US rugby experience and experience of rugby around the world in that a lot of people involved in rugby now uh, are coming from different sports and haven't played rugby for that extended period of time. So the skill sets you develop as uh, an eight to 10 year old stay with you for a long period of time. So it's, it's that introduction of rugby at the high school level and at the junior school level, which I think is going to drive rugby in the United States to even greater heights. And I think outside of the United States, we've all mentioned in the past that when the USA gets their rugby program fully together, they are going to be, they're going to conquer at some stage down the track because of the, the athletic nature of the, uh, the players that, that you have there. I mean, obviously, um, there's a great program out of Glendale, Colorado, which you may be familiar with since you're based in a similar area um, called the XO program, Crossover Athlete Program. And um, Paul Emmerich is the uh, head coach of that program. And I worked with Paul at the uh, Sabercats the last two years. And they're looking at introducing rugby to athletes who have got to the end of their college program or and they've, they've got nowhere else to go. They've not gone to the NFL, they've not gone to the CFL, they're not gone to the XFL or from a football standpoint. Or they might be wrestlers or they might be uh, basketball players or volleyball players. And they're going to transition into this, this sport of rugby. So it's introducing the skill sets. They've already got the physicality that they've developed over the years of, of playing the sports that they've loved playing. But it's now introducing the rules, the tactics, and adding that cardiovascular fitness, which you mentioned, to um, mostly anaerobically trained athletes that the United States has developed so well over the years. So it's quite an exciting time, I think. And I just have fingers crossed that the World Rugby will allow the United States to host the Rugby World Cup sooner rather than later. And you all see what happened to the sport of soccer in the United States after the USA hosted the, the Soccer World Cup a number of years ago. Professionalism and teams just proliferated and the sport was played all at lower levels, junior levels and things like that. So I'm, I'm hoping that'll have the same effect uh, with rugby across the board. But I've been involved in rugby, as I said, since I was eight years old. So. That's over 50 years of involvement in rugby at, at different levels from, uh, from playing and, and coaching and, and strength and conditioning uh, to where I got to the United States for the last two seasons with uh, the Houston Sabercats, which uh, was really interesting, was really fantastic. Uh, it was the first opportunity after all these years I got to actually develop my own weight room for, uh, the, for the team. And the, the team ownership were, were fantastic in building me a purpose-built facility and also allowing me the budget to actually 
speak to EliteFTS.com and, and to get the, um, the gym outfitted the way I wanted it for rugby-specific environments, which was fantastic. Yeah, I think we can all connect with that a little bit of the different sports that we grew up with and how maybe that shapes our thinking in this field as strength and conditioning coaches uh, in the U.S., Sometimes you hear about, you know, the sport of bobsled being one of those that would recruit college football players when they're done playing or, mm -hmm. or division one track athletes, something along those lines. Uh, David Epstein talks about this in the sports gene, just, you know, finding athletes that are great athletes, but in different sports and then applying those skills and honing uh, those sports skills into uh, new activities. Um, I want to ask you, and I think this is, uh, you know, there's a lot of not non-rugby strength coaches out there, but I think this is a relevant question that, that relates to just working with different level athletes, you know, in a sport where you hear in the U S rugby skills likely aren't as high as internationally. Uh, but from a strength and conditioning standpoint, there's still a need to develop strong and conditioned athletes. How does the role of the strength coach change when you're working with lower skilled individuals in their sport, or it's one of those hybrid situations that you're, you're, you're really just trying to, you know, develop the game and develop the sport. It's actually a really interesting question because it actually comes back to actually when I did my master's study years ago and the, the topic I was looking at, to develop my master's program was the title of the master's thesis was the relative contributions of technique training and skill training to the learning and performance of a closed explosive motor skill. So that said, um, I wanted to work with a, a motor skill that was not taught at high school. So I actually chose the hammer throw. So what my premise was, was looking at the way the former Soviet Union train their hammer throwers to the way the United States train their hammer throwers. And it appeared that from my readings at that stage, that the United States hammer throwers recruited discus throwers and shot putters that possibly were not gonna make Olympic level discus and shot put and converted them into hammer throwers. So they already had a massive amount of strength behind them and now they were trying to uh, overlay that strength with the skill development of a hammer thrower. The Soviet Union, on the other hand, brings in the old sports schools, introduces younger athletes to the, the range of different sports, and then they fine tune them into uh, track and field, and then they fine tune them into the throws, and then they fine tune them into hammer. But the strength levels are brought, brought along as the skill development comes along as well. So. They actually had the skills first and then put the strength over the top or concurrently developed those two together. The US had the strength first and then tried to put the skills in place. So it's very similar when we extend that out to rugby. From a strength and conditioning environment, obviously athletes transitioning from different sports are already have quite a good literacy, if you like, within the strength and conditioning, but they have a very low level of literacy in the in this rugby sports skills. So it's important to actually introduce probably a, a far more a higher element of skill development training and sort of not maintain strength and conditioning, but actually emphasize the skill and slowly add a little bit more of the strength and conditioning as you're going through. And I think it's like, it's like a basketball player, for example, who has been told he needs to get a bit stronger in the off season, but he doesn't practice any of his basketball skills. He just actually lives in the gym for the period of time. And sure enough, he gets out of the gym and he, he's definitely bigger. He's definitely stronger, but his shots slightly off because he hasn't been concurrently developing the skill of the, the shooting to actually adapt to his new levels of strength. Similar to in rugby where the emphasis has to be on the skills. And that's why I think any strength and conditioning coach who hasn't worked with rugby before would benefit greatly from doing a rugby coaching level one skills course. Because 
you can actually look at integration of, of fitness and fitness games into the skill development program and actually kill two birds with one stone kind of situation where you're actually developing the skills, but also looking at uh, acceleration, change of direction, uh, uh, visual awareness, spatial awareness, and looking at all the elements of the game, but actually conditioning at the same time. So I think I would really emphasize that if anyone wants to transition across into, into the sport of rugby in the United States at, at whatever level, get a good understanding of the skills of the game. You don't have to, you don't have to play the game, but I would actually do a coaching course and develop some of the, um, look at what the skills are. And then you'll understand a little bit more of where the strength and conditioning fits into that skill development program. When I talk to a lot of college coaches, you know, it's pretty common for, you know, you get hired, you're an assistant strength coach, and you might have a primary sport that you work with, but you might have a secondary or a, a third sport that you work with as well. And, you know, I've heard of coaches that, you know, they get assigned to water polo, but they never played water polo. It's not as common a sport. So I think coaches do get put in situations where they need to learn a sport very quickly and stick stick to the principles of strength and conditioning and just build a foundational program that allows for success as we all know. But then, you know, this speaks to, you know, some of our more developed sports, you know, football, basketball, where you actually get into some pretty individualized or advanced programming that if that's not your athletic background, there's value to really diving into the skill aspect of the sport and, uh, in, not just from a training standpoint or how you manipulate or, or adjust exercises in the weight room, but just your relationship with the coaching staff so that you're, you're essentially part of the, you know, part of the solution when they're, when they're trying to work through challenges on the court or on the field. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more, Eric. It's, it really comes down to how I how would, I would approach the beginning of a new year or going to a new team. And obviously I've, I'm quite experienced over the years with the strength and conditioning for rugby, but a new team, you have to sit down and with the head coach first and foremost and say, what are you gonna emphasize with the playing group that we have? What sort of game do you wanna play? Do you wanna play a more physical game? Do you wanna play a more um, widespread, a more running game? Which obviously will impact on how the strength and conditioning program develops. But then you want to look at, talk to the medical staff and say, well, what are some of the exercises or limitations that an individual player has, which we need to work around? But then also talk to the player and say, well, and I use, the, use this all the time in saying that, okay, Eric, you're a first 5'8". Who's the best first 5'8 in world rugby? And why is that person the best 5'8 in world rugby? And what do you need to do to start approaching where that player is? So you've got these three different areas that you need to discuss elements of the program and then put into place the sort of uh, program. It's an individualized program within a team setting, which I think is the holy grail of uh, sports conditioning for uh, team sports. It's trying to individualize each and every athlete within a framework of a team. And obviously the skills of the team is the important factors. They're the lectures in a university program. As how we adjust the strength and conditioning elements to fit into then becomes the tutorial elements of a of university program and saying, well, the elements are compulsory, but what makes them up is, is what makes the program individualized. And I think that's the key to developing a, a specific or a successful performance program in rugby, for sure. You know, this, this kind of brings us to where we're at today. There's a lot of, there's a lot of layers within performance teams from the performance staff itself, the strength and conditioning staff, the medical staff. Now this new layer of sports science, uh, Ash, I, I, I always enjoy talking with you. As you know, we, you know, we connect pretty regularly on, internal NSCA stuff and and also just uh, at our conferences and, and events. Uh, Want to put you on the spot a little bit with just one last question. 
you know, you've been in this profession for a long time, you discovered it. Uh, and it wasn't maybe the degree you went to get initially, as you talked about, you know, what's the one thing that you think would benefit young coaches to know that you wish you knew when you first got in? I think I'd, I'll probably answer that with two in that first and foremost is don't take yourself too seriously, but take what you do very seriously. And I think I, I, I sort of took myself a wee bit too, uh, too seriously when I was younger and I missed a lot of opportunities for, to have that fun element within what we do and um, the interactions that I had, which, which I possibly could have had a, a, a more broader reaching interactions with a number of athletes that I worked with, but I was just a wee bit too serious. But the other element is keep it simple. I mean, don't let complexity dictate how you do things. It's, it's far better to do the simple, basic things to the best of your ability, the best you can possibly be, rather than do the complex things poorly. And that doesn't matter if it's uh, programming in the weight room, uh, looking at uh, conditioning elements, looking at uh, the way you do your speed, your flexibility, all those elements that make up the strength and conditioning program. But I think simplicity of programming doesn't make the sessions any, any easier. They can be brutally hard, but it's also trying to maintain that human contact with the player and saying that this is, and probably for me now, this is the most important thing I ask a player every day at training. Before we start, Eric, how are you feeling today? Are you 100% good to go? If not, right, we, we need to have a conversation. We need to sort of modify things. And I think early in my career, I would have said, right, I've written the program. It's now etched in stone. It's not changing. Um, I'm the most important element of this team. Whereas now, after 30 odd years, it's like, this is the program I've, I've put in place. Are you, are you physically, mentally ready to do the program? If not, what elements of this do we need to change? Is this a day where we just basically go out and uh, we actually don't do a, a performance rated gym program? We do more of a, a care program, more a, a rehab specific program. Is that going to give us benefit more? So it's, it's finding out from each and every player within the group what they need to do today to get to the back end of the week ready to perform 100% in the game. And strength and conditioning is just an element within that process. It's interacting with coaches, interacting with medical, interacting with uh, uh, front office people to make sure that we have all that import as well. And I think that's where I would sort of advise more and more the younger SNC coaches to look at the human elements. And even now that we're pushing more towards a metric driven life as far as strength and conditioning with sports science and all those elements, which is fantastic, don't get me wrong. But it's still making that connection to the human being who happens to be the player on your team to develop them to be the best they can be on and off the park each and every week. That's great advice right there. Uh, for everyone listening in, what's the best way to, to get in touch with you? I'm not very big on social media. I'm... Um, an old man's trying to trying to stay relevant with a with an ever evolving uh, profession, but I think the uh, the Facebook page that we have, which is the Rugby NSCA Rugby Special Interest Group SIG, is probably one of the best ways to um, to connect with me. And uh, but I'm more than happy to um, give you my email, which is uh, Ashley at AshleyJonesStrengthCoach.com, and uh, I'm I've never really not answered an email uh, over the years. And uh, I think that's an important element to, to, to do in that if someone takes the time to, to send an email to a coach, it's, it's up to that coach to find the time to answer that email. Because I think it's, I, I was very lucky many, many years ago, I had the opportunity to, to meet someone who was just like that when I was only 16 years of age. 
And I wrote him a letter and uh, he answered me back. And he was a, um, an older man who would, was working professionally in rugby. And uh, from that point on, I've never not answered an email or a letter in response. And I think that's the important thing to remember is that we're all part of this together and we can help each other out along the way. It's, it's an important thing to do. Ash, thanks for being with us today. We, uh... Eric, great, great pleasure, Eric. It's, um, it's wonderful to catch up with you. And uh, unfortunately, I don't think I'm going to be uh, across the US for the next uh, couple of months, but hopefully there for January next year for coaches. That'll be great. You know, I, uh, a lot of great takeaways here today for aspiring coaches, if you're new to the profession, but I think even for coaches that have been in the game for a while that maybe don't have a full understanding of what what all the NSCA does from the committees, from the volunteer opportunities. Um, if there's, if there's a takeaway from the staff and a takeaway from, from our volunteer community, I'd say get involved. And if you don't know how to do that, uh, we'll put some links in the show notes, but also don't be afraid to reach out to me directly. Um, reach out to uh, Ashley and, and we'll get you plugged in uh, where, where, where's best for you. There's always opportunities to be involved with the NSCA and, you know, a thing I like to say is that the NSCA isn't 50 employees in Colorado Springs. It's each and every one of you. We're a community of 60,000 strong. It's a huge number when, when you actually, when you actually see that and you see the, the reach of the NSCA to our international community. And, uh, you know, the organization means the world to me. It is my 20th year as a member, and I'm, I'm very thankful in this role just to be your host. Uh, and be able to connect with uh, great longtime members like like Ashley Jones, who've been in the game just a little bit longer than I have. So, um, yeah, thankful to everyone listening in today. We'd also like to give a special thanks to Sorenex Exercise Equipment. We appreciate their support. Thanks for listening to another episode of the NSCA Coaching Podcast. We value you as a listener, just as we value your input as a member of the NSCA community. To take action and get involved, check out volunteer leadership opportunities under membership at NSCA.com. This was the NSCA's Coaching Podcast. The National Strength and Conditioning Association was founded in 1978 by strength and conditioning coaches to share information, resources, and help advance the profession. Serving coaches for over 40 years, the NSCA is the trusted source for strength and conditioning professionals. Be sure to join us next time.